0: So, what do you think your life would look like if you were suddenly adopted into an extremely wealthy family? And I mean that even as an adult. I mean, can you just imagine what would happen if you suddenly had a huge estate to live on by virtue of being adopted into a family? You could go anywhere you wanted to do, go anywhere and do anything you wanted to do because you have access to the entire family's wealth by virtue of now being a member of the family, what would you do? It's one of those fantasy imagination questions. If you didn't have to work anymore, if you didn't have to worry about doing any of your chores because you have those who could do it for you, what would you do? How would you spend your time? I want us to hold on to that question today as we enter into our text from Romans. This is Romans 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh And peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also, through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not debtors, or we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father. Again, we're so grateful for the work of your Apostle Paul and for the Roman Church who heard these words and shared these words and preserved them for us through the power of your Holy Spirit. May we hear your voice and your voice alone as we meditate on this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of... I think one of the most powerful verses, I would argue, in the New Testament is this one that we find at the beginning of Romans 8. It's a great statement of all that Jesus accomplished. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned anymore. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Anyone have that song going through their head right now? (laughs) I don't know where I heard it. I don't know if we used to sing it at church. But one goes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anyone else else know that one? No? Okay. Well, every time I hear that verse, I get it going through my head. Maybe it was a youth group song. I don't know. But um, it's word for word out of there and i just it's such a powerful verse for us and it's a place we have to start you know that's really when we look at history from a christian perspective we find the cross at the center of history everything before is leading towards the cross everything after is pointing us back to what happened at the cross the cross becomes the the, the you know, meeting point of everything that God did in history. And so when we're studying something like Romans, and Paul's working through his writing, really this is where we have to you know, start from in order to really hear the rest of the message. There's no condemnation. You can forget about the whole guilt thing, and the whole putting yourself down, and worried about being judged, and proving yourself, because in Christ Jesus, there's no more condemnation. Now, we have to start there, because if you want to hear what Paul has to say about the seriousness of sin, you have to open yourself to being able to listen, knowing what we know about what Jesus has done. So we, um, in the story of God that we do in our missional communities, um, last week we were at this part of the story when we're talking about the first murder in the Bible, Cain and Abel. And one of the questions we asked was, How would your life change if you knew that you were already loved and accepted, regardless of what you did? All the years I worked in youth ministry, I I still say this is probably one of the most difficult problems facing teenagers today. And people want to point the blame at video games and everything else. But I say, if you really want to understand what's going on with young people and why they're turning out... (laughs) Perhaps a way that maybe you find unacceptable. Look at the culture around young people. Everything is performance driven. Everything says you have to perform in order to be accepted. Everything from all the messages targeted at teens through advertising that says you have to look a certain way and have the right things and own the right things to be accepted to the school system which says you have to perform at this level at all of your tests to be accepted regardless of whether you're improving or not. And sports and athletics that say in order to be accepted you have to be one of the best athletes out there and do it a certain way and coaches who unfortunately sometimes reinforce that message and parents. Who also look only at grades and athletic performance and behavior. We can all sort of take the blame for that. But kids in this culture are being raised in a performance-driven society. So you want to have a great conversation with teenagers. You start here and you say, what would your life be like if you believed you were already loved and accepted? And see if you can get through that conversation without having tears. Because you won't make it. And I'd say as adults, you know, still, if we're honest, we don't always feel like we're accepted. And maybe some of what we do as parents is because we're trying to get accepted as parents. And we want our kids to show that we're good parents or whatever it is. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus did it all. Let's start there. If we're going to approach this text in any way of talking about it, seriously, you have to deal with this word that comes up over and over in Paul's writing, and a number of times here. And it's translated in most of our English translations as flesh. Flesh. This is one of those things where you simply cannot get away from the fact that we're dealing with the translation, and this is why they make pastors suffer through Greek and Hebrew, and I say suffer because that's how it felt to me. Others enjoy it and they go on to be Greek and Hebrew teachers. The rest of us suffer. And we say, we want you to do this because you have to understand that sometimes there just isn't a good way to communicate this. So we do the best we can with English. And the Greek word here is sarks. And it doesn't have a corresponding direct translation into English because it gets used in so many variety of ways. And so even if you just want to study the English literature side of the Bible, and you go through Paul's writing, and you look at how he uses the word flesh, you find that it can mean a lot of different things as you go through the context. And so it can make it hard to understand. And so when people say, you know, I read the Bible, but it's hard for me to understand. I go, yeah, I know. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God to help us through it. Otherwise we would all be in trouble. But it can mean this word flesh that we have translated flesh can mean everything from physical matter to simply like anything, the physical world, to um, the human body, which would be closest probably to how we think of flesh, although we would say animal flesh too, right? I mean, so humankind, sometimes it's used to just describe humanity and humankind in general. Um, in fact, we have that earlier in this very text too, when Paul's talking about Jesus coming in the flesh. Um... It can be morally neutral at times in the way it's used. In other words, it doesn't carry a good or bad connotation. But it can also be used, and often is by Paul, in a morally negative way. In other words, flesh could be a negative thing. It's probably safe to say that it is most often used by Paul, and this text is one of those where we see that clearly, to talk about rebellious Human nature. Flesh. So in this case, we're not talking about something physical. What Paul is talking about, if we want to try to translate this in a way that makes sense, is he's talking about the, the rebelliousness and the fallenness that is inside all of us because of original sin. So in that sense, it's, it's, there's a connection. You can see sort of the connection to the you know, physical flesh in humanity because it's being carried on and passed on, but it's sort of this human nature of being rebellious against God, of being fallen. And this is how Paul most often uses it. And so I I didn't want to pass on this passage without mentioning that, because I think this is one of those terms that can make it really hard when we're reading scripture to really grasp what is being said. Rebellious human nature. And it's often pitted against, as it is here, the opposite of being alive in the spirit, both the human spirit, as God awakens it, and the Holy Spirit, as it works in (coughs) us, so as being opposites, the flesh, the rebelliousness against God, and the spirit, the responsiveness and obedience to God, spirit versus flesh. And if we're going to be true to Paul's instruction and to the wholeness of Scripture, there's only two ways we can go. There's only two ways we can go. We're standing at a fork in the road. And one goes one way and one goes the other way. And Scripture time and time and time again warns us that we're at that point. In fact, we face it many times. And we have to make a choice. Are we going to go the way the Spirit is leading us, in a way of life? Or are we going to go in the way that our flesh and our rebelliousness is leading us, in a way of death? I like the way um, one scholar defined flesh as being independent reliance on one's own accomplishments. Independent reliance on one's own accomplishments. In other words... It's that phrase that two-year-olds say, I do myself, <laughs> right? Independent reliance on one's own accomplishments, the flesh, the spirit being dependence on God and submission to God's rule. Dependence on God and submission to God's rule. In this idea of the spirit versus the flesh and having a choice in front of us in ways we need to go, we find it echoed again and again in different ways throughout scripture. Let me read to you just the beginning of the Psalter. This is what we call Psalms. It was the the hymn book of God's people for a very long time and still is the root of many of our hymns and worship songs today. And the very first psalm, and the beginning of the book of Psalms goes like this. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by a stream of water, which yield their fruit in its season and do not and their leaves do not wither. In all they do they prosper. The wicked are not so, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So you can see the beginning. And I don't know what that song sounded like. I'd love to know. very beginning, it's, it's a, a pairing between those who are responsive to God and those who are walking away and rebellious to God. Deuteronomy 30.15, in the covenant that God made with His people. "'I have set before you today,' God says through His prophet, "'I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. "'If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, "'by loving the Lord your God, walking in His ways, "'and observing His commandments, decrees, and ordinances, "'then you shall live and become numerous.'" And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart's heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing, the Jordan, to enter and possess. And if you want to hear another echo of it, in Jesus' words from Matthew 7:13, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and the road is easy, that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow, and the road is hard, that leads to life. And there are few who find it. This is actually one of the things that makes Christianity um, repugnant to so many today in what is increasingly in postmodernism becoming, although some say it's changing again, but becoming a moral relativistic culture, meaning what you decide is right is right, and what I decide is right is right, and as long as we're not condemning each other, then we're okay. But the Bible doesn't allow us to go there if we're honest with what it teaches us. This is the kind of thing that would say, well, I think Jesus is okay as a teacher, Or as a rabbi, I'll accept that, or even a prophet, perhaps, but not God. Which, by the way, as we enter towards um, Good Friday and Easter, it's good to be reminded that that was pretty much the position of the Jewish leaders of the time. They would come to him and they would say, Rabbi, even though he wasn't formally trained, they would go that far. Some would even say, prophet, you're a great prophet. But as soon as Jesus made any claims beyond that, that was when they wanted to kill him. In fact, moral moral relativism would often just say, pretty much everything's okay, just don't tell me that I'm wrong. Really, the disturbing logical conclusion of this way of thinking is that if nothing is wrong, then everything is right. And people don't want to go there. I love, I love the writings of C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was a brilliant mind. Um, he didn't, he spent most of his life, in fact, his, um, not as a Christian, simply as an academic and as a scholar. And it was through his relationship with um, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. And their little group of um, writers and professors would get together at the pub every week and share their writings. It was through that relationship that he came to know Christ. And then God used his brilliant mind to share with others. And one of the things that bothered C.S. Lewis, even at his time, was the lack of logic. People didn't understand logic and how you build it and how you think about it. And so it comes out in some of his writings. And probably my favorite example of this comes from his fictional writing, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a scene in The Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe. I call it a scene. It's a movie now. But in the book, I still think of it as a scene in my mind. And there's a professor who many think probably represents C.S. Lewis sort of written into his own story. And there's a professor, and he's talking with the children. And they have found, well, Lucy, the youngest child, she's found this wardrobe that goes and takes her into another world. And she comes back. And her brothers and sisters basically think she's lost her mind. And so they go to talk to the professor about it. And this is what he says. Logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach these things? Why don't they teach logic at schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad, For the moment, then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. And, of course, the kids think the professor's gone crazy, because Lucy's talking about another world. How could you follow that train of logic? So people don't like to think about this, that if we say, well, everything's okay that you decide okay, and everything's okay that you decide okay, you just can't tell anyone that they're wrong, that really that means everything's right, and you push people far enough on this, and you find that they don't agree with that. They don't agree that people should be able to simply take human life, or use other human beings in any way that they choose. Start talking about abusing children, and most people will say, okay, well, that's not okay. So people have the sense that there is something morally right and wrong. They just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to work with it. And the Bible doesn't let us go there. The Bible says there's only two ways to go. One way is following God's path, and the other way is simply rebellion. And this whole way of thinking feeds into church discipline, too. When I was in seminary, this is one of the things you have to talk about. It doesn't even sound good, does it? Church discipline... (laughs) I mean, the idea that the church, and I think sometimes we have to get away from thinking the church means the pastor, or as Presbyterians, it means the session or the elders, okay? We're talking about the church. We're talking about the people of God. So church discipline meant this throughout history. It meant the people of God held each other accountable for living according to God's ways. And so we have writings like when Paul says you should cast this person out, And then later he writes back and he says, that was for a time of repentance and discipline. Now accept them back, right? So church discipline is, um, in seminary, people would talk and lament about the fact that the church has really lost its spine and ability to do any kind of discipline. But here's the reality. You can't do church discipline when nobody is willing to commit to the discipline of the church. Because they don't want anyone else to tell them, that what they're doing is right or wrong. And if you confront someone, at, like let's say we follow the biblical model, and we said there's someone in our community who's living in a way that really needs, is against God's will, and we should hold them accountable. So let's do what the Bible says, and let's take another elder, and let's go and let's confront them on this. What happens? Well, they leave the church. And go go to a different church, right? Not the church, not God's church. To go somewhere else where they either accept the way you're acting and approve of your actions, or nobody knows about what you're doing. And that's simply the way we often approach our communities. And so it's really hard. So I want to say, even in the church, we can't excuse ourselves from this idea of sort of moral relativism. Don't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. So when Paul talks about the way of the flesh and talks about flesh, and we said it could be translated as sort of our own reliance on our, our our independent reliance on our own accomplishments. This could be, this could be things like our reliance on institutions and human ways for um, power and position. It can be things like Trying to get the right work title and authority or having the right amount of money or popularity being liked by enough people, sort of our own accomplishments feeding in and giving us power and position through the human systems. The flesh can also be seen as our own self-indulgence, indulging our own appetites, things like food, Drugs, sex, recreation, leisure. I mean, we could go on and on. Appetites, just feeding them. I would say, sadly, you know, the North American church has turned this whole conversation of this way, this path away from God and the way of the flesh, as to being simply a focus on breaking a moral law. In other words, give me the lines. Let me know where right and wrong is so that I don't cross over. And we can point the finger at all those who are breaking that law. And in doing so, of course, we could become very much like the Pharisees. And we know from Jesus' teaching and from Paul's teaching that the flesh issue is bigger than this. It's an issue of the heart. Not simply what we do and don't do. But what's going inside of us that would want us to feed into the self-indulgent appetites or crave power or position or authority over somebody else. What is going on with the heart? And I've often heard others say, and I think this is a good one. I I use this often when I think about my own life. Um, I think in American culture, it's fair to say, look at your checkbook. And what does your checkbook say about where your heart is at? And that's a hard one for us to do. I mean, how much do you give to charity versus how much you pay for your vacations? Notice I didn't say church. I'm not going there. I'm just saying charity. How much do you give to those who need it versus how much do you pay for your own indulgences? And I know know, we have this conversation. I always feel like a pastor. I have to say, okay, it's not a crime to take a vacation. God doesn't say that's a sin. It's not that you can't pay money for nice hotels. But do you see? I mean, all of us get that defensiveness immediately. We're like, well, don't go there. (laughs) Like, you know, now you're really getting in tested territory. I'm I'm saying, I don't want to go there with you, but I want to go there with me and God. I mean, really, am I allowing him to go there? What are my priorities? Am I deceiving myself? The North American church has Increasingly made it okay for us to live in ways that are very selfish. And even condoned it in the name of Christianity and religion. To elevate our family over others. And this is a tough one, okay? I mean, I love my family. I would do anything for my family. But I cannot find anywhere in the Bible where it tells me that my family is more important than the others I'm called to love. And that's really hard, isn't it? I mean, Jesus had some really tough things to say about this. We've also made it okay to elevate saving money over giving. You know, I, there's some great stuff out there in terms of how to be good financial managers as Christians. But the ones that really turn me off are the ones who somehow claim that saving our money is a biblical principle rather than giving our money. Because I don't see that in scripture. Or we would evaluate our mental health over serving others. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've run into this over the years. I think we all have. The idea that the Christian value is to recreate and to give ourselves pause and to, you know, take care of ourselves over serving others. I actually have heard this most in pastor circles. Our presbytery does training on boundaries. And I am, like the most unpopular person in that room every time we do it. Because I just push back on this idea that as a pastor, I should shelter all of my life beyond the hours I give to do ministry from all of you. <laughs> and I should do that to protect my family and to protect myself and to keep myself mentally healthy so that I can serve you. I just, again, I can't find it in scripture. that that's how we should live. Verse six of our text says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The way of the spirit, the other way. (laughs) So after all of that, can we go back to the first verse we read and just be reminded there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's be honest about where God wants us to be honest, but let's not live in condemnation or guilt. That's not a good motive for how we should live. But let's understand that that way, that path that we sometimes justify leads to a kind of death. But the way of the Spirit leads into a way of life where there is no condemnation. The idea that we're fully accepted By God, regardless of how we spend our money, our time, all of those things, He's the only one who matters. So you don't have to prove yourself. So the way of life looks like this instead of focusing on how much or how little I give to charity, I understand that I have been given an inheritance that is beyond measuring. I am wealthy beyond my wildest dreams, because of what God has given me, and therefore, I have no reason to hoard any money. You see how that motivation comes out of a way of life in Christ. I have no reason not to be generous when God has given me everything I need. Fully accepted, fully loved, life beyond death, forever, There's no reason to always think of myself first when I know that life is found in following the way of Jesus and loving others. I love that verse. In uh, verse 11, we read, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also, through his spirit that dwells in you. This is why we try to read the scriptures in context. Because it could easily be said, we could go, oh yeah, Easter Sunday, I get that. If the spirit of Jesus, who you know, raised Jesus from the dead, is in me, then God will give life to this body also after I die and I'll rise again. Okay, sure. But that's not what Paul's talking about, is it? He's talking about now. Did you catch that? He's talking about now. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he will give you life in your mortal bodies. Despite that tendency to want to rebel against God, he's going to give you life, powerful life. And then we can say, with Jesus, Abba, Father. That word Abba is a word that we leave untranslated so we can hear it. Abba, It just sounds like the word a child would say when calling out to dad, dada, abba, right? It's it's a very familiar term for someone to use for God. And Paul says, this is what we can do. We can say, abba, father, we've been adopted by God. Not only, Paul goes further, he says, not only have you been adopted, but you've been made an heir. You've been written into the greatest inheritance you could ever imagine and made an heir and a co-heir with Christ. I mean, the first time I read that, I had to go back and make sure someone didn't make a big mistake. And I checked another Bible. I remember as a teenager, they thought, I knew what heir meant. You know, you're going to get an inheritance, but really, like you're a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Wow. And so I go back to that question I asked you at the beginning. What will you do? You have been given all of this and more. What will you do? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that as we go from this place this morning that you would give us your spirit and life, and that you would help us to move beyond a way of living that focuses on performance, that you would help us if we're feeling guilty and condemned To experience the forgiveness and love of your spirit and that we would have the joy, the joy of living life as you have called us to live life. Lord, for those times when we've walked away, we ask for your forgiveness. We thank you for the promise of life in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.